Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Typically Hazardous. This is Hank Fortner, your host and podcast air. And I must apologize because if you've been following along with us all year long for all 43 episodes, this is now the 44th episode and there was a bit of a gap there. I uh, disappeared on you for a little while while we executed what was an amazing and extraordinary baby ball. So we're so excited to have that behind us. World Adoption Day 2016 in the bag was amazing, and we really, really look forward to the work we get to do in 2017. So now that I went on my four-week sabbatical, we've returned to you with one of our favorite guests of the podcast. His name is Rabbi Henry Schreibman, and when I was first introduced to him, they said, uh, this is Hank, meet Hank, and now I've found out he doesn't like to be called Hank. So for our purposes... We're going to call it Hank Squared or the two Hanks talk about life and spirituality. What's really interesting about this podcast that I think you're going to enjoy is that Hanukkah and Christmas are right on top of each other this year. Oftentimes they can be spread out and sometimes they're right on top of each other. Christmas Eve is the first day of the eight days of Hanukkah. So I invited Rabbi to fly down. He came and joined us from San Francisco, came and flew in for the day and out that very next morning uh, to join us to give us a context of, for many of us who celebrate Christmas and have celebrated that their entire life, oftentimes what's missed is that Christmas is uh, resting on the shoulders of the Hanukkah story. And for so many of us, Christmas carries more power and more impact when we understand where it came from. Not the North Pole and Christmas tree type Christmas, but I'm talking about the spiritual, extraordinary, and uh, really meaningful experience of what Christmas means for so many of us. So this is what I hope you enjoy in the podcast. There's a couple of things you're going to be introduced to. We're going to do some Q&A, me and the rabbi, so you'll get to see some of that going forward. But most importantly, I just want you to hear where the rabbi describes the historical background and then what Christmas can mean to us. So excited to have you listen. Thank you so much for being a part of this community. Thank you for sharing, for liking, for uh, passing it on, for reposting. Thank you so much for comments and reviews. We love it so much, and it really helps a lot. Hope you're wonderful. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Rabbi and I about how to light up the darkness. You ever wonder what your life would be like? What will you wish you would have done? Get after it already. What's life without a little adventure? We get one chance. Best live a big life. The exploration of the unknown. The hope for something more. This behavior can be classified as typically hazardous. I call it an adventure. Welcome. Let's get started, shall we? So would you guys help me welcome Hank and Rabbi Schreibman? Hi, guys. Hello. Well, thanks, guys, so much for being here. It is so fun to wrap up an entire... Can you believe we did a whole year of these? Was anybody just uh, by a show of hands, has anybody been here for all, for all of them? Just by a show of hands. Anybody? Sue Ann's been here for all of them. That's good. Was anybody, was anybody at the resident, like the first one in January back then? Wow, how cool is that? So an entire year, and who knows what next year holds. Like, it's going to be really exciting. Uh, well, here's how this is going to flow. Uh, Rabbi is going to talk for 15 minutes, uh, and then I'm going to talk for 15 minutes, 
And when we say we're going to talk for 15 minutes, that's like a, you know, it's a soft 15. You know what I'm saying? Uh, we're going to talk for 15 minutes each. And then we are going to dive into the questions and the things that you have in your mind and in what's happening for you. One of the things we're going to do on the podcast going forward into 2017 is we're going to have sort of a monthly feature where Rabbi and I just answer questions uh, about life, relationships, love, uh, sex, career, all those kinds of things. So we're going to be doing that going forward. So uh, whatever questions that you have, uh, we're going to kind of see how that goes tonight. Whatever questions you have, if you could pen those and write those down, whatever we don't cover tonight, we'll cover uh, on the episode of the podcast uh, in the next month. Does that sound good? I know Suman mentioned that. So, But now's the time to write those things down. So we are going to have a conversation with you about a light in the darkness. Ladies and gentlemen, once more, Mr. Rabbi Schreibman, 15 minutes and counting. What, what? Let's get busy. I'm so glad you're here tonight. I actually have been using the line of a, a gentleman or lady who sat in the back there uh, right before the election. And the question was, why do I feel so wrong about electing? And then there was that pregnant moment where I went, wait, I'm actually not miming, but I did do that twice. I shouldn't have done that. But, and I said, yeah, you're gonna feel very gray about most of the major decisions in your life. And that has been echoing in my head for the last half a year. So I know that you're gonna start writing down some really good questions. My skin is very thick. And we're in a period where anti-Semitism is doing really well and racism and bias. So let's talk and break some of that open because our job in life is to bring light where there's darkness. Can I get a hell yeah? Hell yeah. Okay, so that's why I'm here. So not 1,000 years ago, so warm up your hands. Here we go. Get warm. Feel the energy in between. Feel the energy in between, don't touch. Again, here we go. So that's your human energy right there. And I'm going to ask you to go back not 1,000 years, not... You suck. Not... No, oh, dear God. They're trying to find a kindergarten for their children. Here are your teachers. Okay. Not... 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 But just about the Jewish people started to emerge. They came out of Mesopotamia. Those of you who are here remember that the same. Nothing changed since then. It's all the same. But at that juncture, some of the mythology that had preceded the Hebrew Bible started to merge with other ideas that were floating around. And that's how you get the opening of the, the Old Testament. The Hebrew Bible starts with God creating the universe. And then finally, after sorting out the mess, tohu vavohu, this sort of mishmash, cosmic mess, which actually fits into evolution, so the Bible is not in conflict with evolution. Can I get a huh? Yeah, that's an artificial dichotomy. So you get the notion of light, Big Bang maybe, because out of darkness comes light, and then the good Lord separates the two. And that's the same thing that you and I are doing all the time, separating the darkness in us from the light in us, determining who we can bring into our light and how and why. So whether it's a natural principle of the universe or what you and I have to navigate every day, this is what the planet is about. So just about 2,300 years ago, Alexander the Great was a bad-ass guy 
who comes out of Macedonia. His father was like Trump's father. <laughs> you know he won the election. It's like, it's, like, it's okay, it's all right. You're going to be fine. I lived through Nixon and Reagan. Look at me. <laughs> Nixon, Reagan, okay. Oh, half the country's really happy, so, so there. So, um, <laughs> my half. Okay, so all I can tell you is that young Macedonian studied with Aristotle. And not only was he able to conquer stuff, but he had a principled argument, which is if you joined the Alexandrian vision, if you enjoyed the notion that we are all in one cosmos, and that's where the term cosmopolitan comes from, that's not a drink. Although for this side of the room, it seems to be. Um, but cosmopolitan means we all share the cosmos together. We are as one. So when Alexander comes into ancient Israel in 329 BCE, this is not stories like Abraham and Sarah and Moses. I can't prove those. Great stories, good lessons, right? Cautionary tales about how to live. But Alexander is real. And he comes to ancient Israel, and he goes, damn. And the Hebrews, who actually had made the mistake of being on the Persian side of the Persian Wars, remember that? And the Greeks won, were like, oh, damn, we joined the wrong side, right? And it's still about the size of New Jersey, ancient Israel, modern Israel. So don't be worried. The punchline is Alexander takes over ancient Israel, and they come to an agreement that if you speak Greek, if you pay taxes as a Greek, you can then be part of the Greek vision. And there's this wonderful heyday of intellectual, philosophical, ethical concepts. So that in the Talmud, you see Greek names. The rabbis call themselves by Greek names. They had so assimilated and enjoyed this. Now, where am I headed? Because Alexander brought light after he dies, which is just a few years later, he died at 29 years old, just a few years after he conquered ancient Israel, the kingdom was split up into three parts, Macedonia, where he came from, Syria in the north, and Egypt in the south. So in the south, they were sort of laissez-faire. When they conquered, moved back and forth into ancient Israel at that point, they didn't really disrupt what had gone on with Alexander. When the Syrian Greeks took over, there was a period of tension because they wanted to be worshipped. If you ever saw a picture of Alexander, he's a good-looking guy. He's got this flowing hair. He was about 13 feet high on top of his horse. So he made quite an impact, and there's stories in the Talmud of having been exposed to him. So here's the punchline. How am I going to move from there to the story of Hanukkah, which is the first festival of light? Hmm. This is how it unfolds. The Syrian Greeks take over. And by 175, it's literally 175 years later, plus or minus, they decided that the tribute would include bowing and offering your tribute like this. Those of you who read the book of Esther, Jews don't like doing that, right? There's one God. You don't bow in front of humans or others. And to enrich the concept, which is exactly what Alexander avoided, they put a picture of Antiochus IV, 
again, we have coins, and he put a halo around his head. You know now the season that we're in with everything has a halo and a glow. And <laughs> that thing, well, that's thousands of years old because a halo means the gods are a light to you. This guy Antiochus then calls himself Epiphanes, Epiphanes. Those of you who are Catholic know that there are a series of Sundays. Epiphanes, yes? Just make believe you know it. Get you get bumbled to the next person. Oh, yeah. So, Epiphanes means the one who beams light, except the light was darkness. Then they said, the Jews don't need to gather to study Torah. No learning. They don't have to keep kosher, and therefore they desecrate the temple in Jerusalem by having pork. They knew exactly what to do. And then they continue by intruding and saying, any woman who circumcises her males will have the child hanged from their neck. Can I get, huh? And then they say there's no Sabbath. Now the Jews had a choice because starting in the 330s, right? 329, 330, Alexander, this was a wonderful arrangement. Both societies thrived, except now they had a choice to go along to get along, which has been a survival of many minorities, right? You kowtow, right? There are a lot of ways of selling yourself to whatever the man is in any period, but that brings darkness to society. And then the other side was to resist. So the story of Hanukkah, which becomes the festival of light, really is the beginning of making a decision to sit by silently or to resist. So it's a story, truly, and most sociologists and historians understand, this is the first battle for religious freedom. Up until then, you notice that the Romans had the same religion as the Greeks? You just roll it over, change the names. But that was different for monotheism. So in 167, they rebel, very much like if Vietnam looks at Russia, they go, yeah, we're a little nation, we took care of Russia. Vietnamese, we took care of France. Oh, in the U.S., we took care of them. So there are historical precedents for tiny nations taking on major powers. And that is the true story of Hanukkah. In 167, the Maccabean Revolt starts a little north of where the airport is in Tel Aviv, in Modi'in. A guy named Mattathias, Theta, meaning he's already highly assimilated, the Th, there's no Theta in Hebrew. He actually turns around and he says, we're not going to give the tribute. And what happens is the guy comes out to say anybody who will do this pork sacrifice and pledge allegiance and bow, you can go along your business and we won't destroy you like we just destroyed all your neighbors down in Jerusalem. This is in northern Israel. And Mattathias goes, that's a great idea. And he kills the sergeant and then they take out a couple of others, and then they say, go to the hills if you want to fight for freedom. So it's really the beginning of guerrilla warfare. So this happy season of light starts with taking a stand for what is religious freedom back then. Three years later, all of the brothers, the Maccabees, you've heard, and these are words are now familiar to you, Maccabees probably. The Maccabees all the brothers are killed. Judah, who looks like a messianic figure, dies. 
but the freedom is achieved after three years. And then you have the beginning of the first post-biblical holiday. Passover, biblical. Right? Passover, you know Passover. All of the other holidays that are part of Jewish life and culture, biblical. This is after the Hebrew Bible has already been canonized. The Hebrew Bible is shut down in 250 BCE. This happens in the 160s. So now the question is, what do you model it after? Passover. Eight days? Really? And the notion of light. So in the darkest time of the year, in December, they said on the 25th of Kislev, which is the Hebrew month roughly associated with December, on the 25th of Kislev, on the same day that the SOBs first arrived and we first resisted, three years later, on that same day, can I get that from you? On that same day, and this is called theological irony, the scales turned from darkness to light. And they rededicate the temple. They start up the fires, right? Which is God's present, light, goodness, all the way back to the creation story, right? right? They divide the darkness from the light. They purify it. What part of the story did I leave out? Anybody know? What part of the story have you always heard when they subjected you to a little piece of Hanukkah during your Christmas celebration? You went, leave me alone. The oil. That oil is not mentioned in the historical documents. The notion of miraculously finding the oil, searching around, and they go, oh, one vessel of oil lasted not one night, not, not, but, even more, eight. <laughs> right, that's the fast track. <laughs> eight nights. And that isn't added until the darkness of the period of the Crusades. That's the original story of Hanukkah, which means turning the darkness to light and to live or die nobly. And there I rest. I got one. I got my own. Uh, don't you love this guy? Isn't he fascinating? Like the things, uh, what I love is like, this is what a conference call feels like with Rabbi Schreibman. It's just like everything he just kind of pours on into his mind. Well, where we pick up from here is where we step into the uh, Gospel of Matthew. Most of you are probably familiar with the first chapter of Matthew where uh, Joseph receives a vision of an angel in a dream who says that Mary will be pregnant and she will give birth to a son. When it says, when the angel says well, she will give birth to a son in verse 22 and 23, it says she will give birth to a son and he will be called what? Emmanuel, which is a, a quote of the Hebrew scriptures from Isaiah. And she says he will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now at the beginning of the first chapter of the new covenant of this new testament of the, of the first book of Matthew, the first words used to describe that Jesus was coming was the word Emmanuel. Now what's incredible about that, what's really interesting about that, is Emmanuel is often used in like songs and hymns and spiritual songs where you say, oh, Emmanuel, is, God is with us. Like a very peaceful um, uh, Hallmark card kind of moment, right? Have you probably seen a Hallmark card like that? When in reality, the word Emmanuel is a military phrase. It was a military term used in, in the book of Isaiah 
to describe what was happening in the time and place, to describe for these wars that were occurring, what was happening throughout the society is that they were at great war with the Assyrians. And so they used a word, they used a phrase, they used the prophecy to say that there would be a woman, a young woman who would give birth to a child. His name would be Emmanuel, which means God with us. They were saying, don't fight against us because we're going to have a young woman have a baby and God will be with us. You do not want to be found fighting against us because God will be with us. It was an us and them fighting words. So can you imagine Joseph knowing that history, knowing those words and hearing those words and saying, you mean Jesus is going to be with God with us? Asking the question, who are we at war with? See, it's most certainly the case that Joseph was aware of the fact of who they were at war with. They were in occupied Israel at the time. So when he said God would be with us, that this would be the son, he was describing an end to this conflict, an end to this war, that he was describing the end of a promise that at some point God would be on our side. He's describing these words in Christmas that step into our Christmas narrative and our Christmas story, step into a moment and a time and place when the world was at war. Do you ever feel like you're at war in your life? Do you ever feel like you're battling against something, like you're pressing against some type of war in your life? Does anybody, anybody here ever feel like your career feels a little bit like war, like knife fighting your way through a society? Does anybody here, you don't have to raise your hand at this one. Anybody feel like your marriage or your relationship is like war sometimes? Anybody have that? No, like the married people with their spouses are like, no, never, I don't feel that one whatsoever. But if you're here without your spouse, you're like, dear God, yeah, some days. Uh, like for us, Suanne and I, this afternoon, you know, this morning was, was really, it, it, you can have moments where you just go, we're just in conflict. Anybody ever feel like you have these external conflicts, like relational chaos? Anybody in any relational chaos with another human being on planet Earth right now? Some hands went up fast, yes. Uh, you know, those are external wars. Anybody ever struggle with internal wars? Anybody here have any anxiety or stress by a show of hands? Just a couple of us, one or two. There's certain moments where we can have uh, wars that we feel like we're at with depression. Wars with uh, our own moods, our own swings, our own sense of ourselves, our own belief in ourselves, our own certainty of the value or the meaning or the purpose of our life. We can have internal wars. See, what you can know about the Christmas story, what you can know about the Hanukkah story, about the oils, about the seven and eight candles, about the days that it went through, what you can know about the words, Emmanuel, God with us, is that God is not indifferent to you. He is not indifferent to your battle. He's not indifferent to what you face. He's not indifferent to your internal or external conflict. God is not indifferent. He's with us. He's with you in the midst of your conflict. So if you came here at the bootleg for nothing else except to hear that God is not indifferent to your struggle. He's not indifferent to your struggle with your finances or your career or that crazy person who keeps making your life a living hell. He's not indifferent to your struggles or to your wars or to what goes on internally for you. He's for you and he's with you. If Christmas or Hanukkah, if the vision of a menorah or a Christmas tree reminds you of anything, it's that God is not indifferent to you, he comes towards you. But the problem with the light in the darkness, the problem with that phrase inherently of God is with us, the only issue globally with society when it comes to religions is could almost always be boiled down to the definition of that single word, us. 
all of the darkness that has been used with religion, all the darkness that has been used with God, where God's name has been used in ways to hurt people and to injure people, is the definition of the word us. Because if we ask that, so that, the question, if God is with us, then who does that mean them is? See, even originally in the, in the text, it was God's going to be with us, so don't fight for them because you don't want to be fighting against God. See, the message of Christmas is that if Jesus was going to come to this place, God was going to be with us. The only difference there is that us was going to get a whole lot bigger than any of us imagined. See, I want to suggest and I want to invite you and me to redefine our definition of us here in the room tonight. That we would change our description. Because here's the problem, is that throughout all of our lives, we start to identify ourselves with groups. Anybody identify with a group at some point in your life? So if I asked you who us is... If I asked you who us is, because all of the societies of our world and even what we've alluded to with the election and other things, if you went to Washington, D.C. and said, who's us? Someone might answer that question and say, Republicans. Someone might say, Democrats, that's us and that's them. Someone might say, who's us? They might say, women. Someone might say, who's us? They might say, white people. They might say, black people. They might say, Latino people. They might say, immigrants. They might describe, that's the us. Now, I need you to know it's so important to have your tribe, to feel like you have a sense of where you come from and who you are and what place you come from in the world. But when we start describing us as a people group, if there becomes a them, we have not understood the wide breadth that the story of Jesus tells us. If there's ever a them. So we have to almost go through like a thought experiment. How big is the us? If you went to Standing Rock right now, anybody excited about the Standing Rock retreat? Yeah. Isn't that exciting? Does anybody not care at all? Okay, good, okay. Just so you can, you're silently going, I know you. But, any, but if you went to Standing Rock and said, who's us? They would say people were against this. If you went to a law enforcement officer at Standing Rock and said, who's us? They would say the ones in the uniform just doing the job we were assigned to do. If you asked, who's the us? Can you imagine in World War II when a Catholic Italian soldier was fighting with the Germans against the Allies as he's praying before a battle? He would say, it's us. And then the other American ally or the French ally or the English ally would be praying before a battle. Which one is God with? See, our entire narrative around this holiday season ought to be an opening and an awareness that the us is actually all of us. Now, let's say we get really, really far. Let's say in this room, you get really, really far with your us. That your us is, okay, our us is uh, Americans. Our us is our nation. Or you even go further. Anybody here immigrate to the United States? Anybody here? Yeah. So you might go, okay, it's not just us Americans. Maybe it's us as a globe. Anybody would go, yes, it's us as humans, right? That's great. The problem with the us as humans is it's a gross um, misuse of the earth. The elephants in Africa are disappearing. And if we don't see ourselves connected to them as us, our oceans are being polluted and turning into a trash heap of plastic. There's hundreds of millions of tons of Toxic waste being poured into our oceans every single day. If we don't see our ocean, if we don't see our earth, if we don't see all of it as us, we're going to eventually find a place where there's no clean air and there's no clean water and there's no animals for us to even spot or see or eat. Because the us just has to keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. See, for us, what Christmas means, what it means to light up the darkness, is that the story entered into this place that God be we with all of us. It is a, anybody see the movie um, 
Arrivals, just by show of hands. Did anybody see the movie Arrivals? It was, that is the most important movie for this time and place. They should show it in every university, in every school. They should show it every place. Everybody should see this movie because it's so true. They have a phrase in there. It says it's a zero-sum equation. If we win or you win or all of us, there is no win or lose. It's us. Every conflict, we have to get to that place where you go, God is actually with all of us because even our Christmas trees... Our Christmas trees are growing with the glowing with the lights and with the flames of the menorah candle. We are all a part of each other. We are all connected to each other. So if you want to know how to light up the darkness, we have to embrace the us. That every time you sense a them in yourself, reach across, reach out, reach forward, reach to the us. Carry the us inside you and you will open up what is the light inside of the darkness because all the darkness comes from an I'm going to take or that's not my problem. Because you see, the darkness is not our enemy. The darkness will always be with us. There will always be thing in, things in life that's darkness. And have you ever had darkness, like a dark season? Anybody ever had a dark season in your life? Now keep your hand up if that dark season ever in your life ever taught you something that was so essential that you wouldn't trade it for anything. See, the darkness is not our enemy. You know what the enemy is? It's our indifference. Our, our, the enemy is our indifference to the darkness of other people because it's not ours, it's not us. But friends, when someone is suffering across the planet, when there's a five-year-old child in Aleppo who's bleeding and just waiting after a bombing, that's us. When there's people who, where there's injustice, when there's people who are being discriminated against and hurt, that's us. It's all of us. This is why I'm so passionate about the children of this world that I will never get to meet. Anybody ever heard of Adopt Together? Just by a show of hands and noise. Very exciting thing. We hit $10 million about 20 minutes ago. Uh, uh, for our, in our five years, only in our, in our near five years, which is so exciting. But in the midst of that, it's why I'm so passionate about it. Because if there's a child in South Africa or a child in Malaysia or a child in the Marshall Islands or a child in Phoenix or Los Angeles who doesn't have a family, that's a part of us. And getting them into a family uh, changes us. So my invitation to you this Christmas season, this Hanukkah season, this holiday season, is to broaden the us. But see, the big question would be, like, how do you do that? Anybody ever have a, a how? I not, you know me, I'm a how do, you do, how do you actually do these things kind of person. Well, part of, the re, part of the ways that we do that, the first thing you do is you find a, a way to reconcile. You find a way to reconcile in us. Right here in this room, there's a person, there are people, there, there's a something that needs to be reconciled. Maybe it's a commitment that wasn't kept. Maybe it's a person where there's a conflict. You bring about an us whenever you reconcile or iron out, iron out what is a kink in sometimes or a fold in sometimes of us as people. The, be the beginning stages of that. That would be number one. And I've got a really cool story for that um, if I've got time. The second thing I want you to do is I want you to, I want to invite you to change the mantra inside of your mind. Now, I, I, now, some of you might be sitting here going, I don't have mantras. I don't, I don't do mantras. We're all doing mantras. How many of you, by a show of hands, are aware of the narrator that is in your head that narrates your entire life for you all the time? <laughs> Keep your hand up if that's sometimes a British voice. <laughs> yeah, totally. Sometimes, like, I literally, mine will go to Scottish, or sometimes it'll just be like a deep Scottish voice. That, that narration voice, there's this, uh, a guy, a friend of ours, his name is David Bayer has this wonderful quote where he says, the moment you are aware of the narrator inside your head, self-awareness has begun. The victory has begun. We all have a narrator. You have a narrator in your head. Anybody, um, you're probably in the room. We've already established this. Some of us are struggling with anxieties at some point during the day, right? Do you know where that anxiety comes from? 
the narrator gave it to you. You were fine before he started talking. You were fine before she brought up this cheery British voice telling you about all the things that needed to happen or could happen or horrible things that might happen. Have you ever had those voices inside your head? That's the narrator. You have a narrator that's talking you through even this moment right now. How are you feeling? What do you have to do next? Is your phone on? I have a narrator inside my head. Is this going okay? How much time do I have? Is Rabbi having a good time? Are you enjoying it? Did you write down questions? I have a narrator inside my head all the time. But see, sometimes those narrators get caught, like the skipping tape of a DJ. It gets caught and it says things like, I don't know if you can do that. I don't know if you can do that. I don't know if this will work. I'm not sure if that's going to happen. What about us? What about us? What about your life? What about your life? And it repetitively circles over and over. And our mantra becomes things like anxiety or anger or fear or us and them. See, to change your mantra, what I want to invite you to do is invite you to the words of the, of the Desert Fathers who just constantly repeated things over and over to themselves throughout their day. To take one phrase for you to repeat over and over to yourself throughout the day. This is how we would light up the darkness. And that one phrase I want to invite you to think of is God is with us. So when you're anxious and you have this crazy anxiety over this war that's inside you or this war that's outside, just say this to yourself over and over. God is with us. God is with us. Not as not God is with me and he's going to help me beat them. Because that would be a weird, like, westernized, like, uh, capitalism version of, like, yeah, God's with me and I'm going to crush these guys. It's not that, that would be a gross misuse of this phrase. But that God's with us and that God's going to be in the midst of this conflict. When you're having a conflict with your spouse, when you're having a conflict with your children, when you have a conflict with your boss, to go, God is with us through the whole thing. Continually repeating yourself, this is, a, God is with us. This is the invitation of the Hanukkah narrative, that God was with the people even in the midst of hardship. This is the Christmas narrative that Jesus is not indifferent to your brokenness. He's not indifferent to your war. He's not indifferent to your oppression. He's not indifferent to your chaos. God is with us. I want to invite you to reconcile your life and your world. And when we reconcile, we bring light to darkness. Because in, because in our world, darkness is not a natural state. Light is our natural state. So to bring reconcile, reconciled life and reconciled light to all the pieces of darkness, to constantly mantra to yourself. I put it as the, te- as the text behind my screen. Sometimes I'll just type it out. So every time I look at my screen on my phone, it just says, God is with us. God is with us. God is with us. Try it for an entire day. Try it for a couple of days. And watch how your sense of who you are and who we are, your sense of anxiety and anger and fear and resistance will start to melt away just a little bit. One of the, one of the reconciliation stories or narratives that I have for my life, have you, anyone ever had um, someone bring light to you in the midst of a dark time in your life? Or have you ever had light brought to a dark relationship in your life? I had this happen recently because, um, as many of you know, and some of you may know this story, is I have a four-year-old daughter that's my best friend. Anybody ever met Cora? Yeah. We're best friends in, in the whole world. And, and part of that is because uh, my wife was in the, the hospital for about a week to 10 days longer than Cora, so I was with, in the ICU with her, so we bonded first. So I was doing skin-on-skin skin in the hospital. I was the guy walking through the hospital shirtless, like th- wishing I had worked out before I had gotten to the hospital or been prepared for that moment, which is another talk altogether. But here, here's the, the thing is my, my four-year-old and I, we're bonded. We're best friends. When she and I are playing, the whole world is, it disappears. My two-year-old, on the other hand, has hated my guts from the day she was born. She would, as soon as she could talk, she, her first words to me were, don't look at me. And then she would scream. 
So I would, have to, I would have to walk around my house and not make eye contact with her, and she would throw these crazy, chaotic fits, and she would throw herself on the ground and just scream at the top of her lungs. If I touched her, if I looked at her, if I came over and said, hey, like, if I walked over and I just said, hey, Charlotte, and she would just start crying and throw herself on the ground and spill things. She just couldn't stand me. So I'm headed to Hawaii after the Demi Lovato Nick Jonas tour. I took Sue Ann and the girls to Hawaii to reintroduce myself to my family. And I was talking to my mom. And I said, hey, I'm going to Hawaii. And she said, yeah, are you excited to see the girls? I said, I'm super pumped to see Sue Ann and Cora. But Charlotte, man, she just tests like my ability to live. You know what I mean? Like I just couldn't, I just, because she just screams at the top of her lungs and screams in my ear. And, I, my, and then my, my ear starts ringing on that side. It's, aw- it's just awful. It's like, I've had thoughts where I literally was like, maybe she wanted a different dad and the whole destiny thing. It didn't work. I'm the wrong guy. So I'm telling my mom, I'm just like, yeah, just, that's going to be chaos. I don't know how we're going to handle that. She said, well, she, have, you told, have you asked for her forgiveness? I'm, I said, forgiveness for what? For bringing her into this world? For taking care of her? What would I be apologizing to her for? She said, oh, she, she said a two-year-old doesn't treat someone like that unless they've been hurt. And I was like, I haven't done anything. I mean, no offense to like, I'm sure I have shortcomings, but she's two. I haven't had enough time to really mess her up. And she said, just, you know, see how it goes. See if, make amends with her. She said, okay. So I, I, we, we're in the pool. The, for the 15 minutes, I'm in, I'm in Hawaii, within 15 minutes, we're in the pool, and then Cora has to go to the bathroom, so Sue Ann takes her. So Charlotte had two options. She can drown in the water or let me hold her, right? <laughs> so she's letting me hold her, but she's like, she's leaning back like this, and she's like playing by herself in the water, like just throwing water, no eye contact whatsoever. I said, hey, Charlotte, I'd like to have a conversation with you. And she turns over and she just like looks down at her nose at me, like she, in a condescending two-year-old kind of way. And I just said, hey, Charlotte, I just wanted to uh, tell you how sorry I am. Um, when mom was pregnant with you, it was a really stressful time. And for these last two years, I've been traveling all over the world, and I just wanted you to know that if you needed me and I wasn't there for you, I'm just so sorry. Uh, so would you please forgive me? And then she just stared at me down her shoulder to the point, like she stared at me so long that I had to tell myself, you're the adult. You're an adult. She's two. Do not look away. She's, and she with this wordless intensity, like deep into my eyes. And I moved my head like three times just to see like if she was still with me. After 15, 20 seconds, I break the silence and I said, so could we be friends? And she just goes, nods her head and then goes back to playing in the water. For the next three or four hours, she let me hold her. We went to the beach and she let me play with her. For the next two or three days, she let me carry her. She let me hold her. She let me feed her. She didn't yell. She didn't throw herself down. She didn't scream. We get to the beach, and finally, after three days, I just said, hey, Charlotte, I love being your friend. She grabbed my face with both hands, and she kissed me on the lips. And I, did, and, and I told Suanne, and she goes, she's never done that to me. She's never done that to me. <laughs> it's been 79 days since that happened. 79 days since that happened. She has rarely, if at all, thrown herself on the ground and have one of those tantrums. When she wakes up in the morning, which is sometimes way too early, guess what she yells? Dad, I'm awake! Dad, I'm awake! And then she wants to show me things, and she wants to call, and she wants to talk on the phone. And when I call Sue Ann, she says she hardly wants to talk to you. Hey, Dad. Hey, Dad. And she cries when I put her down. She wants me to hold her the whole morning. She wants me to hold her while I make breakfast. It's as if somewhere inside her there was this hurt and this wound, and all I had to do was make it right. See, for me, what brought light into my, that heaviness or that little shred of darkness in my family was the ability to step into those moments and just say, there's a wrinkle here. There's a heaviness here, and it just needs to be brought to light. We bring light to that when we start to realize that it's not 
us and them, but it's all us. It becomes light to our communities and to our homes and to our families when we take a big deep breath and go, it's all about us. So may you, this holiday season, this Christmas season, embrace a bigger and bigger and bigger us so that as you and I embrace this Christmas and this Hanukkah and this holiday season, every time you feel a them come up, you extend it and go, nah, that's just the old school model in my head. It's all about the us. Would you do that with me? Awesome. Thank you guys so much, very much for uh, listening to me say words. Okay, so that's, oh, that's yours. Okay, great. So that's, um, those are our two, our two pieces, our two conversations about light and dark. And now what we are going to do is we are going to transition to your questions. So if you have a piece of paper and you've written a question on that already, would you just hold it up in the air and then Sue Ann, Colton, and Kelly are gonna run up and they're gonna grab those questions. And then while we're waiting for questions, is there anybody who wants to just get us started with some Q&A? We have this idea, yeah, no. And we have this idea that um, Rabbi and I would um, answer questions about life from our different um, spiritual backgrounds and holdings and all these things in our life. And so uh, we wanted to preserve some time tonight, not just to tell you about what we had on our mind, but to make sure that if you came out tonight and you dealt with parking, anybody deal with some crazy parking? Uh, and that if you dealt with parking and that you dealt with all those things, that you would get some answers to some really important questions. That would be our hope. So uh, we've got a stack of cards. Uh, while I read through these, is there anybody who wants to get us started with a live question for um, Rabbi or myself? Just throw a hand high in the air. And we'll get started with live questions. Anybody? Live question. Rabbi's waiting. <laughs> uh, Go ahead. What can you do to expand the definition of us and she, others? She'll come. How can we go to expand the definition of us and others? Yeah, in others. In others. The way I do it is I look at the person or the entity that is most different from me and approach it. One of the rabbis said about 2,000 years ago, kabel kol adam besever panim yafot, approach every human with an open face. So one of my students says she has a resting bee face, you know? <laughs> She's a really sweet kid. I actually never saw her smile. So I think the rabbis were saying 2,000 years ago, we have the choice of going, which is that sort of angry two-year-old in us trying to stare the other down versus approaching the other. And when I've seen, even as a kid, when I saw somebody who was excluded, I was sort of attracted to that. Negative energy is energy. So I think playing off of that is a wonderful exercise that then softens your edges of the other. And that's the way I do it. It's great. We've got some great questions here. I would say uh, you, you can't. Does that make sense? Like you, it's almost impossible in my experience to get someone to expand their boundaries unless they experience you expanding yours. I, I, I don't know that I've had any luck in a, any relationship trying to get a person to do what I want them to do. <laughs> Does that make sense? Like that's even like, because if you think about even the concept of leadership or the concept of management or whatever else, like we've, we've invented words around getting people to do things that we want them to do. And we've invented these words and people inherently resist. Anybody love a boss? They love bosses, the concept of a boss. Nobody in the whole room, does that make sense? But what's a boss's job is to get you to do something. And I think it's the same way. The only way a person can do that is if they choose it. And that's by watching you do it radically. 
So um, one of the old cliched phrases is that you, whatever the leader does in moderation, the followers are doing excess. And I think it's the same way when it comes to expansion, like for you to expand your, your sense of us. Uh, it's, it's almost like a, um, hypocritical to try to get someone to do that. You know what I mean? Because then inherently they are them. But that person's limitation, like there's a question here that I think is, is really important and you're going to uh, love this, is um, there's a question here that kind of pertains to that sort of that same thing. Is uh, someone asked a question? Any strategy on showing love towards friends and family that are obsessed with lines on a map, aka Jesus loves the USA number one the best? Anybody know someone like that? Just, just so I know we're all. The, but there's that same category, and just to and to pigeonhole off that same thing, I I have people I'm related to by blood who have that very same sense that sort of America is the best and that God pretty much loves us the best and loves us the most. And what God loved about Israel, he now loves about the United States. I'm sure you've heard like these kinds of like very, and they're heavily locked in that way. It would be a great mistake for me to um, consider this person a bigot, consider this person foolish, or consider this person insane. Because all I'm doing then is uh, I'm directing the same energy that she has towards the world, I'm directing back towards her, which is only gonna continually spark and fuel that sense that like I'm right. These are the people who forward you those like Obama's a Muslim emails, like you've probably gotten those. You know, if anybody, it's like, it's like and, I, and thank you Gmail for the filter option. Like that kind of, those kinds of things, like, it, but those, those are things that people are carrying within them. And so to diminish their thoughts or their experience or their understanding, which I think is, is what's happening in large way to all the people who are watching the politics right now as they go, what, these fools, these people, these whatever, to call them that is only to uh, fight with the same weapons that you're, that you're frustrated with. Does that make sense? The only way to do it is for you to extend the peace you hope that they would have also, if that makes sense. I can take you a quick it? shot at that. The, the prophets, uh, almost a thousand years before the advent of Jesus, envisioned a messianic era. And that messianic era was, oh boy, we can be a pile of Jews in Israel. That was not the message. The message was that Jerusalem would become a center for all and each person would come in the name of their Lord. So you can see this throughout Isaiah and some of the other key prophetic literature. There's also a kind of arrogance that comes with the notion of the chosen people that's embedded in the Hebrew Bible that then goes to the New Covenant that Jeremiah talked about, which becomes the New Testament. All that makes it new is that Jesus was following a trend and then expanded upon it, like the leader doing it this much and Jesus being the one who did it that much. He took the Jewish message to the non-Jewish world and said, if you weren't circumcised, you could be circumcised by the heart. Now, that's not my perspective Jewishly, but in terms of the message of the New Testament, it's clear that he was like the, some of the rabbis of the time that were willing to talk to anybody about the message. And it's really, a, American exceptionalism um, helps us get off from Europe. That permits us to remove ourselves from Europe. But then we started to believe our own stuff. So if you want to really misinterpret the Hebrew Bible, think the chosen people are this exclusive little club. And if you really want to misinterpret the New Testament, assume that Jesus did it just for Christians as opposed to the world. His image was the unification. It is all one. We're all the same in the light of the Lord. Thousands of phrases. 
There's a great question here. It says, if God isn't indifferent to us, why do I rarely feel or hear him? Why does he seem so hands-off if he cares so much? Uh, there's a Rabbi Heschel who wrote a, a wonderful book, and we were talking before we started today, how sometimes just the title of the book can be moving. And he wrote in the late 50s, God in Search of Man. It's happening all around us, and... Don't anticipate that God is going to intervene in your life. Don't anticipate that God is going to enter human affairs on a regular basis. But if you breathe in the reality of every day, of every sunset, of the stars when you walk back tonight, of the beauty in a stranger's face, and the anticipation of tomorrow, which can be better the next day than it is right now. If you can live those moments fully, then the divine is present in you. God is in search of us. It's just a matter of turning on the right part of our radar, and it has nothing to do with gifts. And all the little Jewish kids who go, well, we have eight nights. You know, only a minority could come up with that one. <laughs> it's like, Christmas, well, we've got eight nights. <laughs> So it, the, the misconstruing the light for material goods is what we should really be bringing light to tonight. It's really seeing the light in each other's eyes and the differences that we share. There's a really cool quote for whoever wrote this question. There's a really cool quote from C.S. Lewis that I just recently tweeted. That's what I was looking up. It says, we may ignore, but we can nowhere evade the presence of God. The world is crowded with him. He walks everywhere incognito. And I think when you're feeling a sense that God isn't with you or God isn't connected, oftentimes I feel this way when I'm trying to get God to do something or I'm trying to get God to be with me in something or get him to accomplish something. I, the, one of the uh, thought processes that frustrates me the most or that probably creates the most anxiety is when I'm trying to figure it out. Anybody ever trying to figure something out? You're trying to plan your future, figure it out, like figuring it out. The most annoying thing God withholds from all of us is answers. That's the most obnoxious thing. Like I, it was, it, you just, if I had to like grab hold of, a sh of, a, of the collar of his shirt and be like, you could just give us a little, it's not wealth or wisdom, it's just answers. Anybody have like questions where you're like, God, why is this not, why is this so unclear? And I think some of the chaos that comes together with God not being indifferent is that understanding. I feel like the more aware your spirituality gets, the more mature your spirituality gets, the quieter it becomes. When your faith is young, and when any person is young, you ever notice that kids are loud? Like kids are just obnoxiously loud. They're loud or like crazy. You, you're in a quiet room like this and a kid is just breathing is like somehow loud. Like you ever notice that the older a person gets, the quieter they become? The more mature a person is, the less words they say. The more uh, centered a person is, the more mature a person is, the less words they have to say. Uh, there's a phrase that says that um, a fool speaks because he has to say something. A wise person speaks because they have something to say. And there's, these, there's this understanding that the, quiet, the more mature your spirituality is, the quieter it becomes. Uh, when, you, when you first engage in your spirituality, you want things that are loud and big, and you want miracles, and you want like chills, and you want feelings, and you want noise. And then the more mature it gets, the more you, you can see God in a smile of a stranger. You can sense him in like this wordless, quiet space. And, and I, I think that's the invitation when we go through seasons where God doesn't feel like he's close. It may be a season where God's going, I need you to hear whispers. 
and not expect earthquakes and not expect fire and not expect chaos as much. I think that's one of those invitations. Um, Another phrase that just crossed my mind is that if you're looking for answers in, in religion, you're probably asking the wrong question. Dear God, can I have the strength to get through that complex? Give me the wisdom to determine. So I believe, if I'm not mistaken, God exists between the question and the answer as to how you can see the truth. If you've been a rabbi or a minister or a priest, or some of you may be therapists and such or a teacher, people come to you for information and guidance. But you know what? They actually know what they need to do already. They really do. Could you then say that, for the sake of our conversation, that if God exists between this question and the answer, could he exist somewhere between the light and the darkness? Well, God, I mean... That perhaps that's actually the, that's actually the spiritual journal or journey, or that's the liminal space. That's the space where God exists between that light and that darkness. Pure Jewish theology, God is both. Yeah, right. The destruction of the storm and the calm of the of the waters before and after. That's a hard one. That's why I need him around. We'll have more. Lot. We'll you know, do more of this. Just to solve those issues, those problems. Here's a really good one. If you're a person who tries to bring light into the world as a result of you putting yourself out there in a vulnerable way, how do you handle the people who will inevitably criticize you and try to take you down a notch? It's a great question. Um, you ever been taken down a notch? I live there. Probably. <laughs> um, I'm shrinking. Anybody feel like you get taken down there. a notch all the time? Or do you have people who are just waiting to like knock that down? You know, the definition of altruism is to do something because it's the right thing to do. So I used to say when I was successful, I'm only as good as my last mistake. And that's a very wise phrase to think about when things are rolling. And when things are not rolling in your direction... I, I believe a good mantra is simply, that's the best this little bald man can do. And I, I don't know how many of you have a hard time shutting yourself down in the middle of the night or dread the idea that your brain will start up again when you roll over. And, but, you know, that's the best that you and I can do. Live your life to the fullest and then admit you're not perfect. You can't do it on your mm-hmm. own alone. But isn't it wonderful to keep trying it does break through. It really, really does. The, uh, this is a great question for me personally, because as most of you have probably experienced, if you've been around uh, my life or you've heard the Typically Hazardous podcast or been around the conversation, you know that I'm on a uh, very strange journey. Uh, you know that I'm on, uh, I'm, on a, I'm on a walk. And I had this, I went to Indiana recently and uh, I met God in Indiana. Does anybody, and, uh, anybody from Indiana ever been to Indiana? It's, you go there and it's quiet and like there's no horizon. It's crazy. And but uh, I've watched this documentary called Comedian from 2002, and it's Jerry Seinfeld. It's on YouTube. You can watch it. And it's Jerry Seinfeld finishing the Seinfeld show, doing his last HBO special, and then going to comedy clubs that look a lot like this. And he's trying to do stand-up comedy, and he sucks, and he's terrible. And they document him getting back to getting good at it and he gets his chops back and he says I'm so afraid if I can, can't do this I'll lose it forever if I don't learn how to do it again I watched that documentary and was overcome with the uh, Im- how impressive it was to go that even past all of the success that he's had and he's got more money than he knows what to do with he's still obsessed with the work of it 
And I think for me, I've struggled a lot of times with like people who criticize or being vulnerable or putting something out there and having it suck. Anybody had a huge failure in the last 12 months? I started, (laughs) I did this thing called the Mother's Day Fund. Anybody ever hear, get me an email? It just failed on its face. It was the worst. I just, I do stuff like that all the time where it just, it just absolutely collapses. But uh, I'll do talks sometimes that completely bomb and fail. I'll do podcasts. I'm just so grateful to anyone who listens to the podcast because I listen to like those first three episodes and I'm like, oh my gosh, who gave this person a mic? Why did we, we should just delete the whole backstory. But I'm keeping all the bad episodes on there, the boring ones, the ones that no one listened to anyways, just so that you can watch and observe the process because the goal of doing, of putting yourself out there and doing the work and saying I'm putting out the light is the light. It is the work of it. The joy of it is getting to do it. The joy of it is the conversation. So go and on YouTube and watch The Comedian. If you have a work that you feel like your life is about, uh, there was a quote I saw recently that said, you can either be addicted to the rewards or you can be addicted to the work. And it's better to be addicted to the work. Because if you're waiting for the rewards or if you want everyone to say, you're awesome, everything you do, you, everything you put out is amazing, it's, it's awesome, then uh, you're, you're gonna have your mom and your auntie and your grandma and your dad, and that's gonna be your audience forever. But until you're getting hateful emails or like frustrated emails, which I get every time we're here or every time I mention Trump's name or I make a joke about Hillary or any kind of thing, like I'll get emails. If, if the, even when we started this thing, I started getting tons of emails. People were frustrated or mad or were trying to figure out what I was doing or why I was, are you not allowed to do this? Like you, you're going to get those things. And, he, and even though it sucks and you get a little bit of a stomach ache, I just take a really big deep breath and go, this is really all about the work. It's about the gift of getting to do this thing and the gift of getting to bring, to bring light out into the world. So I thank you so much for your question. This is really important. Um, uh, we've got a couple, and I don't want to go to that one because that's too long. Uh, I'll, tell you what the, I'll tell you what the question is, and then I'll tell you where you can find the answer. For the rabbi, how do you feel about Christians relating Jesus as God? How do you see Jesus and his relationship to God? And that's a really long answer might be really short for you. We did a podcast called The Rabbi on Jesus that was like 47 minutes long that you can find on the Typically Hazardous page. So I'll save that one for for that answer there. Um, Lastly, uh, yeah, I'll give you this one. You ready for the last question? Can we do the last question? And then we'll we'll progress before it gets loud over there. Um, What good is God in all of this? Perhaps it's ideal God should be the perfect unifier, but the vast majority of the time, God only does the opposite, where each side ultimately claims their opposing truth as God's furthering the divine. Wouldn't it be better off to see each other more clearly and objectively if we left God out of it completely? What a last question, huh? I didn't even read that whole card, but that's like the perfect last question. And Rabbi's going to give us the answer. That's why we brought you. I'm, complete, I'm completely comfortable with that, personally. If you don't get the monotheism, part of ethical monotheism, which is the common thread between Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Which I'd never heard that phrase before until you brought, introduced that phrase to me, but it's fascinating. I mean, that is the common yeah. thread. It, it, the monotheism is that the universe isn't about the materialism. It's about the invisible, mm-hmm. the invisible God. You walk in, it's empty. So that God is completely comfortable with your not believing in that God. What God cares about, it would seem, if that God matters, is you're doing the right thing and navigating how to do the right thing. So when I thought about tonight, this fits in, light is about illuminating and inspiring others. You all have that ability in your own work, in your own way. You have your own gifts for doing that. Each of you can point out to somebody else what's feasible 
when they're going, there's no way. Each of us can bring um, brightness when others are feeling dark. Your radar goes off. Approach them. I think the goal of life without God is to polish your own aura and then do the right thing about people who are different than you are. And if that doesn't attract the divine to the universe, then we just have to wait it out. (laughs) Because the universe is good if you do that. And if God is not a unifying factor, then do the right thing and follow your heart as you navigate what it is to do the right as you bring light. That's what I try to do. That's great. I think if people sincerely follow the teachings of any of the God, of any of the ethical monotheism, if anybody follows the teachings of those things, it will draw you to light and love and us and openness and beauty. The people who use God to separate and God to further the divide, they would use anything to do that. Uh, we're gonna do a, uh, an episode called The Religion of Politics. And uh, the reality is, if you watch the way people are reacting politically to each other, all you have to do is change Republican, Democrat, Green Party. All, all you have to do is change, ch- call them religions. Imagine if Republicans and Democrats, if those were religions and they had churches, just imagine that type of scenario. I know that's a very far reach. But imagine that that was the case. The way they treat each other is very similar to what we would look back on and say, the way they talk about each other, the way they discuss each other, the way they relate to each other, the holy wars that we would see. You're gonna, you'll find ways for people to separate because very early stage evolution of our brain is very much that us and them dynamic, that people would use God for that. But the communication of Hanukkah, the communication of, of, of Christianity, the communication of, of the Christmas story is that it's all about us and that the us is an ever evolving and ever expanding thing that eliminated the word them. It's why in the scriptures there's this phrase that if God is for us, who can be against us? That doesn't make mathematical sense unless us is all of us and God is the only other than us. He's saying if God is for us, who could be against us? God is the only other. It's just us. We are the only ones left. We're the only ones here. So I want to invite you to embrace that. Um, It's been so fun to have you. Rabbi Schreiman, can we thank him one more time for being a part of this conversation? Um, And I feel just a tad bit nostalgic. I feel like we should do something like cool to like end like a year's, can you believe we did this for a year? Uh, But beforehand, just so you know this, this all started and for you and the whatever work you're putting out in the world, This all started over a phone call with a friend where I said, I want to give talks and I want to record them and I want to podcast them. And through a series of conversations, he said, what if you found venues in Los Angeles you didn't have to pay that you could fill with a bunch of people and would people keep coming and could you do that once a month? We are now a year into that idea that all started with an idea and a phone call. What, you are in the middle of the, a making of a thing into the world that is all connected. So I just want to invite you, if you have a thought, if you have a feeling, if you have a thing, and you're waiting and wondering, like, will this work? Will any of it happen? We've had great ones. We've had ones that were not so great. Thank you for enduring. We've had moments, like, just different moments, and you're in the middle of what has been, for me, proof that when you step out and when you keep moving, you gave me a wonderful, wonderful gift. You gave us a wonderful gift. Uh, did you know that it's a gift the, a generous thing to be an audience. Did you know that? Like that's a, that's a gift that you give just to be here and just to listen. And my hope is that somewhere along the way, it's clarified things for you or given you a gift someplace or helped you in some way or helped you live a better life in some way. Because it's just such an honor to get to do this. And I could not do this if you didn't come and 
be here or come and download or come and be a part of this. So uh, from the bottom of my heart and from the most sincerest place in my life and in a very strange uh, and wonderful two years of my life and in a very weird year of my life, um, you being here and you coming and you being a part of this has meant so very much to me. Uh, and I just want to say thank you so much for being a part of this. And thank you. Uh, some of you don't know this, but Trey uh, over here, in the Trey Manny over here in the back is the one who helps us book all these venues. And uh, I just want to say thank you. And uh, Terrace and Reed and Colton and my w lovely wife, Sue Ann, who's been to all 12 of these. I'm so glad we kept you for a whole 12 of these. Uh, you just... You just cannot know what it's like to be a part of something like this and to know that you um, show up and you're a part of it and you lean in and you co-create this with us. So thank you so much. Could we end? We're going to end. I'm going to pray and then Rabbi is going to do a blessing in Hebrew. Does everybody feel good about that? Uh, that's going to involve us standing up together and I want you to touch another human being on the shoulder or somewhere else appropriately. And... Um, <laughs> Touch them on the shoulder. And then what I want us to do is I would just love for us to just breathe into the us. And uh, so much about breath is so much is about connected to us and this Christmas season. I feel almost like we should sing like a Christmas carol or something. But I don't want to weird you out. It's only December 5th. Uh, so touch another human being. And uh, if you would just close your eyes and take a really deep breath in and really deep breath out. And I want to do it one more time, and I want you to breathe in all the limitations of us and them. And as you breathe out, you just expand further and further. God, we thank you for this life and this world. We thank you that you placed us on this planet, and you connected us to each other. And it's not the internet that connects all of us. It's just technology catching up to the way you placed us on this planet. And so, God, as we are connected to each other, connected to our brothers and sisters of all faiths, of all colors, of all, all politics, of all methodologies, of all ideologies, of all beliefs, of all nations, of all colors, we pray that this Christmas season, this Hanukkah season, God would just continually expand the us and that we would over and over and over just remember that you are with us. You are with us. We pray all of this in the precious name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Rabbi? Hanukkah is a very minor holiday. Uh, the embedded concept was enough to help create Christianity and Islam, which is your job and my job is to take the light we've been given, interpret it, and share that light with others. This blessing is 3,000 years old, and it talks about bringing God's light. May the Lord's light shine upon your face. May the Lord turn toward you and create a sense of peace and contentment with you and everyone else in this precious world. Can I get an amen? Amen. Thank you guys so much. You're awesome. Have an awesome holiday, Christmas, Hanukkah season. You guys are amazing. Thank you. Well, friends, I hope you enjoyed our conversation about lighting up the darkness. I hope that this conversation helps you explore what your own us and them dynamic is and how to expand it 
and how to grow it even more. I want you to know how grateful I am that I get to do this podcast, but I also want you to know how important I know that it is that we keep evolving and it keeps growing and it keeps expanding. So what we're going to do is we're going to, and don't hold me to this, but I think we're going to retire the podcast here uh, for the rest of the year. So there will be two more weeks or so left of 2016, and we're just going to let those slide out. We have a really, really fun uh, three months prepared of podcasts going from January. The entire first quarter is going to be some really unique, and as you'll see, sort of an exploration of what this podcast can look like and how we can best give you the information and insights necessary to live your typically hazardous life. So it's been an amazing year. I'll I'll post a year-end episode, but I just wanted you to know this is one of our final ones, and you have no idea how grateful I am that I get to do this, and you are part of this community as I explore and figure out the best ways to gather all the information and all the people and all the stuff out there to hopefully help you live your most extraordinary, adventurous life. Have a wonderful day. Have an extraordinary time this Christmas holiday. And may you live a typically hazardous go.